good morning, everybody. This is Robin Ayoub from the Localization Fireside Chat, and welcome to another discussion on an interesting topic today. We're going to cover a bunch of topics. I have with me an, a guest and a good friend of the channel and good friend, and everybody knows uh, the, my, my guest today. He doesn't need to be introduced, but I'll, 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 do, I'll do a bit of a, an introduction and I'll let him tell his story. Stefan Kiwi, thank you very much for being with me. I really appreciate it, and thanks for taking the time to be on the channel this morning. Um, uh, you're welcome to the channel anytime. I know it's our first conversation. You and I exchanged messages on LinkedIn, but we never really had a chance to talk. So first meeting, first introduction, nice to meet you. And nice finally, we, we you, have Robin. a chance to I meet I feel each like other. I'm with a celebrity this morning, so it's, it's a big <laughs> honor. Thank you for having me. Same here. I guess two celebrities talking today, so that's good. Uh, you're well known in the industry, Stefan. Your name precedes you. Your reputation precedes you. Um, thank you very much for joining me. So for our audience, you know, I mean, I'm sure some uh, we all know you in the industry, but just in case somebody who doesn't know you, tell us your story. Ooh, and I'll, I'll try to be fast. And I've, I've told it a couple of times already, so I, I, I will try to, to, to not elaborate too long. Originally, I'm from Antwerp, Belgium. Uh, I moved to Switzerland with my parents in my teens. Uh, that's how I kind of got involved with languages in the first uh, in the first place. I spoke Dutch at home, English in in school at an American school in in Bern, uh, and uh, French in in my everyday daily life, uh, just living in Switzerland. And my school was in the German part of Switzerland, so those are the four languages that I ended up effectively speaking. And then um, I moved via Greece and the Caribbean to the United States in 93. Um, what else? Yeah. And then I ended up tumbling into localization by accident, really. Uh, maybe it wasn't that that big of a surprise with the language that, that I speak, but it wasn't until the end of the 90s that I had a conversation with a friend of mine who just had started working for a company called eTranslate. They later became translations.com and they're now part of TransPerfect. Um, and she was looking, she was telling me the story how she was looking for somebody to come help her out uh, starting the, the French office in Paris. And she needed somebody badly who was fluent in English and French. And the more we were talking, I was like, hey, maybe I could come help you out. And like two weeks later, I was in, in Paris. Uh, and working my first localization uh, job. And that's how I ended up being a project manager. I'm originally uh, somebody that started in, in operations and then uh, ended up in, in sales and, and marketing for, uh, for other companies. But that's kind of, that's my story in a nutshell. So how did you end up in the U.S. though? You haven't transitioned to the U.S.? That's a chercher la femme uh, question. Uh, I I'm, I was living in Martinique for uh, a half year, three quarters of a year, doing a, a tour guiding job there, and I met a girl from San Francisco, and that's how there I ended up in, uh, in in San Francisco. That's the uh, that's the story. I'll save you the details on that, Robin. It's much <laughs> juicy for. Hey, maybe the details uh, that the that the um, that the audience are looking for at this point. Yeah, I don't know. And anytime, anytime there's a there's a story like this, people are oh, tell me more. Uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, for the sake of the time, I guess it's all happy coincidence. I'm sure everything everything worked out. Um, you know your your success story now. 
the rest is behind us and there's a lot of future ahead of us. So, yeah. So when we originally, uh, I, you know, started conversation, I've noticed that you've written on a lot of interesting topics in regarding the industry. So uh, you produced a lot of good pieces of content in, in the industry that it's actually, you know, makes you think in a lot of ways about how you address variety of topics. So I've got a few of them, and this is based from your own writing. So I'd like to explore them a little bit. And, you know, we have several of them today, so I'd like to cover and hopefully we have the opportunity to cover all of them. But let's get started with localization-led growth. What do you mean by that? And if you can encapsulate or unpack it for – I know it's a large topic, but if you can encapsulate in a few minutes, that would be great. So it's really interesting because I was asked uh, for the TBO, TBO Talent Forum to present the keynote on the true impact of, of uh, AI and localization. And AI has kind of been a, a leitmotif for me. In, in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of writing about that. So it was a, a prime occasion for me to kind of review all the things that I'd written in, in the past year or so. And w one of the ideas that really came to mind was this localization-led growth uh, idea, which was based on, on the, uh, the, the product-led growth uh, principle that you can see in, in software, and that's been so successful in the last couple of years. And I, I, I started putting this together kind of, kind of as an ad hoc inspiration. Um, and then a week or two before we had the actual presentation, uh, I was meeting with a panel, and I was a little uh, anxious about it because it was a concept that I had kind of doctored up in my head and uh, to my big relief, it really resonated with the, with the panelists. We had Julio Leal uh, from uh, Spendesk and, and Sung Cho from Amazon. And um, they had, I'd given them a list of topics to, to review and given them some questions that they could decide on whether they would wanted to uh, to participate uh, in those questions. And nobody had circled the localization-led growth topic. And I had interpreted that as, you know, maybe I'm off on in a direction that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but it was actually the opposite. They thought it was so self-explanatory uh, and evident uh, that, they neither one of them wanted to volunteer to to uh, to answer uh, something about that actually. So, it, in in essence, the, the concept, if I can quickly unpack it for you, is that um, localization is is a, is evolving in a from a from an afterthought to really becoming something that is a lot more prevalent and a primary consideration rather than a rather than a final step. And uh, in software, we're already familiar with this concept of product-led growth, building the wagon as you ride it, so to speak. As soon as you have a product ready that can be rolled out, one of the ways you can learn about it and perfect it is by letting users take part in it and, and uh, give you feedback. And localization-led growth kind of goes from the, the same um, vantage point where you, you roll out 
your content in multiple languages globally and the product gets released not just in English, but in a bunch of languages and you perfect the product with the feedback that you get and you make it better as you, as you go along. So um, am I to understand that when we are talking about uh, localization led growth, um, the fact it was before, I mean, we went through so many, so many stages in, in, in this story because we would go from, you know, 30 years ago and I just dated myself. Sorry about that. Um, to, um, I think you know, I'm in the same boat, by the way, I'm not that far behind <laughs> to, for somebody to say, you know, you can't speak English, you can't buy our product to yep. now we are, now we are saying, you know, no, let me translate it for you because I want to make sure that it's global. So English first and other languages after from what I'm hearing you say it is all languages go out at the same time, help perfect the product. So are we, are we, you know, from a growth perspective, this specific product. A, we're enabling, uh, I'm just trying to, you know, visualize this. We're enabling the customer to have a first-hand experience on the product in their own language, in their own demographic territory, et cetera. Second, yeah, rather than, so, and, and we're driving the growth by releasing the product in all languages at the same time, rather than to try to release it in English and then add languages on in layers. Like so there's another there. dimension to that, Stefan, uh, the dimension of policy. So um, I live in Canada, obviously, and there are many yeah. other jurisdictions around the world similar to Canada where um, some people, like they feel uh, some demographic, uh, they will feel like a little bit negative about, you know, releasing something in one language, but not releasing it simultaneously into another. And yeah. it lends to the thinking, uh, and it's rightly so. Are we not as important as the other demographics? And, yeah. you know, you hit a nail on the head here when you said simultaneously to all the other demographics. I think not just from a product growth perspective, but it it it, it elevates or it lifts the other demographics to each other's levels, if you will. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's the, it, it's the story that kind of ties in with the... Scott Schwalbach said, said something um, a couple of years ago in, in a panel discussion I was involved in as well, in which they were talking about linguistic QA and trying to get everything right uh, linguistically and how at, in his group at Amazon, they actually, because it's internal content that they produce for uh, uh, educational purposes, they actually don't try to get the content 100% correct linguistically anymore. What they do is they roll it out as fast as possible, so without any delay in all the languages. And then um, they have feedback mechanisms and triggers that might elevate a particular piece of content to be further reviewed by uh, humans. So the 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 emphasis is really on, on getting the product out, localized, and and letting the the users be the feedback loop, uh, uh, so to speak. And they can that can be both on a on an actual feedback level where somebody leaves a comment and says, "Hey, this sentence doesn't sound right in French, and you should be reviewing that." And also 
an engagement in in his particular group the way he was explaining it is that from a data perspective they can they can evaluate whether engagement is going up or down and based on that they can go into a further review of the linguistic aspect of uh, of the content as well if that makes any sense yeah it does make sense thanks for explaining that appreciate it stefan now the um the second topic that i have if you don't mind addressing is uh the uh language operation so langops and a uh you as you called it a new paradigm in global expansion i'm assuming they're related yeah so there, i mean this ties in perfectly uh obviously um langops is is ai related as well it, it comes from the from the concept that you as where in the past <coughs> communications were very one directional in in localization we would localize a website in order for people to be able to read it as communications become much easier and especially since we're at the dawn of an of the ai chatbot uh and and bidirectional communications this one directional thing is not practical anymore at all and communications are going to be a lot faster in the future than we have used been used to in in the in the localization realm so to speak so um the, the new paradigm really is, is that as Jochen Hummel uh says all the time your customers are actually talking back right now and they're expecting to be talked to in French Chinese or Japanese whatever language you've addressed them in, uh, so to speak. So we're moving towards what in LangOps you will call language factories in, in which content gets produced instantaneously and um, things are a lot more AI driven, so to speak. So speaking of AI, now, uh, you have a, um, a a piece was written around AI's role in supporting lesser spoken languages. Now, mm -hmm. AI is a larger topic, and we, there's so many angles to this conversation. But on the lesser spoken languages, um, it's very interesting because it seems to me that most of the solutions are. This is just me, you know, looking at the amount of data that's out there. Uh, either in people conversations or posts on media, et cetera. They we seem to be focusing on, let's say, the top 10 languages around the world. And the solutions are always geared toward those top languages around the world. Yep. You know, but you've got like a few hundred other languages that people are, I don't know if we're focusing on or what is the issue there that we're not addressing them. Like, uh, I feel like we're in Canada, for instance, there are some Aboriginal languages that needs to be resurrected, like are they, you know, disintegrating. Um, and but they need to be you know uh, lifted up again and 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 put back on the uh, on the on the visible uh, screen, if you will. Is that what you're trying to address in that in that in that uh, AI uh, piece that you've written? Yeah. So actually, I actually uh, wrote about it in my AI and Loop <clears throat> newsletter, uh, which is is quite popular. I, I put out an article uh, this morning that talks about the the lesser spoken languages and the opportunities uh, it's one of the, these opportunities I, I believe that for localization the future can be really bright if we can if we can adjust 
and we can take some of these these opportunities that have been given we can play a really important role i believe in helping the lesser spoken languages uh, survive uh, part of the 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 challenge for ai developers with these languages is that they depend on data you need data in order to train your large language language models properly. And I believe that LSPs in particular uh, probably have the most data in some of these lesser spoken languages. So they can play a very active role helping develop AI and uh, preserving some of these languages in a way that maybe otherwise would condemn them to extinction. Um, I think that uh, we can do it in, in several ways. First of all, we as language service providers possess data and we know that the AI developers need data in order to train their large language models. We also have uh, the connections and the technical know-how to uh, consult with the, the AI houses and, and teach them about, uh, about some of these languages as well. So I think there's a, a potential synchronicity there that allows us to, to be involved uh, and, and give us a, a noble cost, so to speak, to, uh, to pursue in, in this regard. And there are some applications being developed in that regard as well. Like I interviewed somebody on the channel a few months ago now, and um, I want to say about three, four months ago now. And uh, that individual has a is, is an, um, an entrepreneur who started a new company, and it's primarily focusing on um, taking, you know, Hollywood uh, video uh, movies, etc. So they're normally um, dubbed to, let's say, the primary languages that we that I just mentioned earlier, the top ten languages around the world. But this individual is focusing on you know, the sub-Saharan languages, Indic languages, you know, minority yeah. languages where you were not going to get a, you know, a big, large studio house to um, dub a, you know, the new Top Gun movie to that, to that, to that language. So, and it's pretty cool. They're using AI for it. It is, uh, it's amazing the, what the new technology is allowing us to do. And you're absolutely correct, uh, Stefan, in terms of the, not just the, you know the LSPs who are who have the ability to perhaps help uh, provide the data points for a an artificial intelligence instance to make sure that we're keeping those uh, languages alive, but also there is a possibility to reach out to those communities where there's still some people speaking those languages and collect data from them that would help us also uh, build that uh, and preserve that language. Yeah, and then I, I, the last thing that I almost forgot to mention is is we we could probably help with the creation of synthetic data as well, and 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 you know be at the helm of of uh, of helping make data, so to speak, that doesn't necessarily exist because of the uh, exposure we've had as uh, as language service providers. Yeah, correct. I mean, synthetic data is. Um, is 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 uh, good to have, but you would agree probably natural data is is the way to go. But if you don't have it, of course you're gonna try to create something uh, using uh, technology. Yeah. 
So speaking on the uh, staying on the uh, AI, and I know um, I've read I've read your uh, comments or your piece on the New York Times lawsuit, and you called it a turning point for AI and localization. Uh, what's what's your context there? Why 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 is that? <laughs> well, I, I think we've kind of jumped in into this AI bath uh, with. With, without taking into consideration all the implications uh, uh, up front, and I, uh, I believe that this lawsuit is but the tip of the iceberg on what's going to happen uh, from a contention point of view with, uh, with content. Uh, of course, it's not always easy, I think, for entities to prove that their content was "Quote unquote stolen from them," uh, but in this particular case, and maybe I can uh, give some more background to the viewers uh, about this before we we elaborate. Uh, so this lawsuit came to be because the New York Times claims that uh, OpenAI not only used their articles to train the large language models that then uh, made up GPT but they also weighed that content so heavily that when uh, users would ask chat GPT certain questions, the answers that were generated by the large language model would almost be verbatim what was in the New York Times articles. And so the contention here is, or the New York Times is saying, if you're gonna be using our data in that sense, then, you uh, are dealing with intellectual property. And this is beyond the fair use doctrine. All these AI houses, they, they are now hanging their hat on the legal principle that the content that they're providing was scraped from the internet and it is content that is quote unquote up for fair use. And thus, they don't owe anybody who's written the content a penny. The New York Times obviously is contending something quite different and is now asking a piece of the action. What's weird a little bit about the story is that at the outset, uh, I believe that the New York Times has been working with Microsoft and OpenAI uh, to provide this data and, and provide the content uh, freely. So... They're not completely blameless either, I think, but there's a lot of there's a lot of money involved, and I assume that this lawsuit is not going to be the last one that's going to be brought by uh, a provider that has a lot of content and is going to want a piece of the action. So, um, what does it what does this really mean uh, for AI and beyond AI? for language service providers that are implementing AI solutions. That's the big, that's the big so, question. So the question Who owns the data, it's not unlike, you know, the, the age old conversation we've been having about translation memory. Who owns the translation memory? It's always been the customer. But in this case, I, I don't know that you can 
that you can so easily make that distinction. So it's it's really interesting where this is going to go legally. How are they going to unravel this bowl of spaghetti legally is is my question. What do you think? But what I'm thinking about is like there's two sides for this coin. I mean, when you once you like we always talked about who owns the data, you bring up a very good point. Who owns the memory? Uh, that's the kind of question that always come up in the uh, in the localization world. But in this case, when you put something on the internet in a public domain, it is in public domain. If you want to protect it and, and you know put it behind a um, a uh, payment wall, payment wall meaning that you know I paid for that and I now I can read it, um, or I'm, I privatize the data that you can have no access to it. But imagine you know everybody on the internet saying, "Oh no, you don't own the data; it's mine," even though it's on the it's on the internet and millions of people have seen it already or read the article, et cetera. I'm just trying to figure out like how, what kind of case it's going to be uh, when it goes to court and that court is, you know, hearing the case. How are they going to prove that this, in this case, that this data cannot be used? It's already used. It's already in the internet. It's already yeah. public. I think, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Oh, I like that. I'm no, <laughs> I'm no, I'm no lawyer, but I, I think that, the, that the, uh, the, the New York Times is saying essentially that because their content is behind the paywall and it's paying content that oh it's a paid content they should they should they should you know be be remunerated for that intellectual property I'm sure this is going to be really a, 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 not an, a, a, a short process uh, for them to figure it out. And it's also my understanding, as I said, that it's not like OpenAI went and stole the content. The New York Times was an active participant in all that. That's right. Uh, from my understanding. So it's a little bit uh, insidious to, 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 to say that, you know, afterwards. Stefan, I mean, here's, should, here's, here's another a twist to all this. You know the articles that they uh, the, 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 where the contention is right now. I'll bet you those articles were co-pilot written by AI as well. <laughs> yeah, undoubtedly, Un undoubtedly. So um, you know, like I get your point. I mean, but the point here is like on a on a on a hundred thousand foot level, kind of a you know general statement. AI needs to be carefully contemplated in any scenario. On a personal level, yeah. on a business level, I get I get your point. Before diving in, you know, before jumping in, make sure you have a some sort of a parachute pack because it may it may um, end up hurting the business or the individual versus the intended initial consequences that you came up with. The intended, you know, what you wanted to do, you wanted to do good, obviously, but sometimes it reflects negatively. It depends on how you use it and who's using it. It cannot be using, and, and I this is my general feeling. People heard, and here's the, here, you know, like everything else in life, free is good. And, you know, people jump into free. You know, if you put a free on anything, you got to line up and, and you know, uh, everywhere. So people heard that AI is going to allow us to do things for free, uh, low cost. It's going to allow me as a business to cut my cost down. And they jumped in two feet first without asking anything. And now I think like you can see it like in somebody sent me an email. I can tell like it's AI written email. I can tell like it's yeah. an AI written post. I can tell, you know, content that's written by AI without human intervention, you can immediately detect that. And you don't need a yeah. genius to figure this out. However, 
the intended, you know, uh, way of using AI, it was more intended to assist me, help me. You know, if I'm, you know, if I'm doing something, it makes it better, improves it, not necessarily replace me. And I'm on the beach somewhere and I tell AI, hey, you know, produce 17 blogs for me today. <laughs> and all of a sudden, those 17 blogs are posted. Yeah, I'd say, I, I think you, you're absolutely right. Using AI without any human intervention is not a very good idea. I think Diego, Diego Crescieri had a post on LinkedIn in the last few days where he started by saying, I, I wish, and I'm paraphrasing, I wish GPT would start a social media post with something else than exciting news. Um, and of course, his his post started with exciting news, and then I wish GPT <laughs> would stop uh, suggesting exciting news. There's th there's keywords that you recognize if you work with uh, uh, GPT on a regular basis that come come back oh, and that skip the veil. Those emojis, veil. man. As soon as they see, as soon as I see an emoji in, you know, a rocket flying or something, I feel oh, okay, so. Yeah. AI produced. Yeah. So, um, now I don't know that I agree with that completely. I have to tell you, Robin, because I put it, uh, I put uh, the the emojis on my paragraphs at times too, but it's definitely not uh, GPT uh, generated. Although, as all of us, we we all use. AI to generate content on some level, but there's nothing that that gets copied and pasted directly from uh, from from OpenAI's GPT into into something that goes. It live. definitely needs to be great... it definitely needs to be monitored and policed yeah. by a human. Uh, uh, you know, you know, I'm joking about the emoji. Everybody uses emoji, but when you see emoji uh, used in a sentence that it sounds robotic. Um, it sounds like came out of a machine, then, you know, you yeah. know, it's a combination of two, I guess. Now, yeah, yeah. if you don't mind just moving on to a few other topics, I would like to cover the, you talked about minimal viable language solution. What's this about MVLS? You called it. So this is actually, it's very much connected to the topics that we've brushed on, uh, before this morning. Um, and it's actually something that was in the idea was introduced to me by my uh, good friend Dietzis Grouse from Native Lo Localization, and it's something that that he's been um, uh, trying to implement with with his clients. So essentially, it, it's it, it follows the the same principle uh, of MVP, minimal viable product, that is a, a software uh, idea where you you build the bare minimum and then you release it out to the public in order to weigh it and uh, see how the market receives it and then you fine tune it. So in that sense, minimal viable language solutions indicates the same thing rather than to translate everything and try to finish a completely localized entity at the outset. Start with the low-hanging fruit and where you know that you're going to be having the most efficiency and strategic focus uh, releasing 
translated or, or localized content. And by measure of efficiency there and the feedback that you get, you decide whether it's worthwhile to continue with the localization or change your your strategy in that sense and and uh, maybe um, obviously it's it's an it's an AI uh, driven principle as well where you most likely release a lot of the content with an AI pass and maybe you wait for feedback in order to perfect certain things and um, get humans involved to do to do the uh, the post editing while the product is already uh, in uh, in review by the uh, by the people that are using it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Now, so okay, you do the bare minimum at the front end, but do you over time do you continue or you measure the outcome and then you continue? Yeah, it's, I think it's all con it's all connected with with measuring and evaluating or the advances in measurements and evaluation that the current technological capabilities give us. Are we into a discussion of um, outcome-driven localization versus localization? I think that's for the first two, three topics that we talked about. It sort of talks about outcome-driven localization basically yeah. i'm not just translating for the hell of translating i'm actually translating because i'm seeking an outcome either a new customer or selling more or yeah. improving productivity or however however you want to measure it i, I really like that terminology i'm gonna i'm gonna make sure i write that down because it's a really good term you point there outcome based localization um i think is is a great way of of encapsulating all of the things we've talked about this morning. We, we, we have the ability to be a lot more um, deliberate and personalized going forward. As a matter of fact, I think it, it's always been one of our aims in localization to be personalizing content and for the first time we have a technology that allows us to personalize the product in an almost immediate way that never was available before either it was not budget friendly enough or it was not fast enough and now both of these barriers are being removed and our customers have the ability to present a product that can be a lot more personalized and speak to the individual customer. And we can measure along the way what the results are, whether something is working or not. And I think that's a fundamental difference that is coming to live now as well, is that we have a lot more direct feedback as opposed to where we were in the past to enable us to do it. 100%. Now, before we dig into the other topics, I really um, wanted to ask you this before we started the conversation. As soon as I started thinking okay. about our conversation and, you know, getting together over this podcast, um, I'm interested in your view, in general view, like regarding the industry. So where do you think, in your view, the industry is at now? And where do you think the industry is going to be, not 10 years down the road, but a 
five years down the road. It's, I don't have a crystal ball. and Nobody does. Uh, Me and you are speculating. One of, the things, <laughs> one of the things that I uh, highlighted in my keynote this week was this computer, one of the first computer predictions about uh, the evolution of the world. Um, and it was recorded in 1966. It's one of the first computer programs that that put out a prediction as to where humanity would be. And they were actually predicting that we were going to go extinct by the year 2040. So it wasn't a very positive uh, evolution. I think that some of the, the, the dynamics in our industry still have to be uncovered because things are moving so fast. However, there's a couple of patterns that I see that are really encouraging to me uh, as far as the, the the thriving of of the localization industry, I think a lot of um, there's a lot more content that's going to be translated than in the past uh, because of these new technological abilities. So there's a huge amount of content that traditionally would not get translated and localized because it was time sensitive, because it was too expensive, all the reasons that we've talked about already. And now we have an opportunity to help our customers with that content in a lot more efficient way. Yes, a lot of the content is, uh, translation is gonna be automated in, in the future, but there's gonna be a segment remaining that will involve human interactions. So I hear this constantly from translators, how they're worried about not being able to make a living anymore. I don't see it that way. I think link, the role of the linguists is going to change fundamentally and they will become more post editors than translators from scratch. But it's not like a kid that does complex math with a calculator. Uh, can you do the square root of a, a number by hand? Sure, but it's just easier to have the calculator there. And I think AI is going to be fulfilling the same role. There's going to be content always that will have to be reviewed very carefully by human translators because there's legal aspects involved, because there's uh, uh, sensitivities that make it so that you need to take that extra precaution. And at the same token, there's going to be a huge amount of content processed that in the past didn't even come up uh, for consideration to be to be localized. So I think those two things, those those two tracks can exist at the same time. And um, I think the, the future is bright for the, the localization industry to stay involved uh, with language related uh, activities, but also to evolve and and uh, play different roles, maybe that we haven't even thought of at this point because it's difficult to anticipate. But I think we are, are we have to adjust and adapt our our modus operandi with the times. There's no doubt about that. Things are changing, and and yeah, we have to evolve. I have several thoughts on this one, if you don't mind. One is sure, I'd love to know. One is the localization industry needs to think of itself not an isolated industry anymore, but part and parcel mm -hmm. of the knowledge base industry. 
So we are, we used to be, as you mentioned earlier in one of your comments, you, meant, you mentioned that we transition used to be an afterthought. You know, uh, if, you have a, if you have a content somewhere down the road, you decide to translate, oh, I need to translate it. So we're sort of like the last piece in the, in the knowledge-based industry, in the, if, you, if you draw it as a workflow process. Now, I feel like we are a lot more integrated in, we need to be a lot more integrated in a knowledge-based industry as a service intimately integrated. And how do we do that? I think we're going to be a lot more data-driven industry than a transaction-driven industry in the future. Um, and, you know, one of the topics that I just always comes to mind is, you know, the ability now, and I, and I love your opinion on this one, the ability now that we have as, a, you know, as technology is becoming more and more available to produce content in native languages. So I can come in and I can do a post in 10 languages if I want to natively using generative AI. Yes, I can edit it and I can, you know, I can make sure that it's, you know, not necessarily 100% accurate, but I can get to 95% accuracy without using yeah. any human in it. How is the, it, and I know, you know, like a lot of people would say, oh, this is going to be the end of uh, localization if we start talking like this. But I mean, I'm not going to be the one who prevents this because technology is there already. People are using it already. But we need to adapt to that technology. There's a bunch of services that we can offer. You know, you mentioned earlier the translators, and I'm having those conversations with translators as well, telling me, hey, you know, the world is over. I'm, you know, I'm going to be replaced with AI. And I'm thinking, no, you just need to adapt a little bit and use AI to your advantage. We're still talking as an industry about 2,000 words per day as a standard productivity day mm -hmm. rates. I mean, in with all these yeah, technologies, we're still talking about 2,000 words per day. <laughs> like, where's that going? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it, this is, it's a really interesting point you bring up. And I had Ronaldo Ditzinger on uh, one of my look discussions not too long ago. Um, he's the, uh, the president of Supertext. And what's peculiar with his background is that um, Supertext is originally a content writing outfit, not necessarily, a, you know, they came to translation through content creation. So, I had a really interesting conversation with him about this because he was kind of seconding my my thought process on this. I think there's an opportunity for the localization industry to be involved with content multilingual content creation, and we could become multi -con multilingual content creators instead of translators of other people's content in different languages. Um, I think the future holds possibility for customers to roll out personalized content and solutions that might not even get translated. It gets produced specifically for an audience and the content that is produced for a campaign, which is the equivalent, might not be exactly the same content because we're producing it for you know a tunisian audience instead of for a canadian or an american audience and uh you know when we're doing it in france we're talking about soccer and when we're doing it in the united states we're talking about baseball to you know pick off something really simplistic but that's kind of the the the, the gist of it and i think there's a real opportunity for uh language service providers to become content, multilingual content providers. That's right. And, you know, 
for like I'm, one of the burning question I always had about this industry since I've been at it for 21 years is and I attended the first and I remember the first I think it was the only conference I attended it was Loke World in Montreal came into Montreal in 2006 I think or something I can't remember the date and um and I've always noticed that we're very inward thinkers in the way we think about our industry we you know yes we talk about it in a maybe because we're afraid i don't know what it is uh what is the psychology behind it i come from various other industries i'm in, I'm, I'm from the tech background so i've worked in the technology sector for many years and we always talked about like white papering we talked about solution solving uh, problem solving via solutions white paper you publish it you talk about how you solve the problem for a market for a customer i don't see that here i always talk about you know i always hear uh the the problems within the industry is being discussed. You know, how do we produce more or, you know, streamline the input from a, you know, coming in or how do we design a workflow? We have software that does that, but we never talk about it. How are we solving it for a market? You know, how are we solving it for the tech industry? How are we solving it for the manufacturing industry? It's, it's, I feel like we're very inward thinker, thinkers. And I don't know, do you, if, do you think and I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe just my feelings. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's because traditionally we've always been an afterthought and it's been difficult for us to get a seat around the table at the very beginning and conduct conversations with other departments, if you want, within organizations? And it's because of this silo effect that we are just coming in at, on the on the back end and are not really used to advocating for ourselves up front. That's really, you know, if 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 I can be honest about it, that's really what I was aiming at with this idea of localization-led growth in the beginning of our conversation here. The goal really there is to make localization a revenue driving uh, activity and make it considered up front and make design of products, software or other an international endeavor from, from the beginning because companies will realize now with the time and the budget barrier that much lower that it makes sense to think of a product as a global entity from the get-go. So um, a few things. One is this industry started, you know, to become or to take shapes uh, about 30 years ago. There always been, you know, language industry since the Babylon days, 6,000, 10,000 years ago. People always yeah. needed somebody to translate to somebody. Now, we started calling it an industry, I would say about 30, 35 years ago, starting to take some form, some sort of a shape. And immediately, right within that time frame, and if you look at the if you look at the economics of our industry, industry does not exist because we're philanthropists, right? It exists because we're business people, and business people need to yeah. do two th two things: generate revenue, generate profitability, right? At the beginning, profitability was high, things were going well, and then the um, commoditization discussion starts to happen, and you can see it as a phenomenon. You know, the price pressure started. Everybody went from being a professional, having this conversation, and I've had this conversation many times, a translation, a translator is equal to any other professional. 
um, lawyer, doctor, etc., because they went and studied, and rightly so, the same amount of academic years, the same amount of qualification. Why not? Should not be considered as any other profession. I think the industry shot themselves in the foot by competing against each other too much and driving the price down. And then the economics are not working out. So let's figure this out now. So it's starting to become, we created a problem. I'm trying to create a solution for it by talking about it, about how we solve productivity issues, profitability issues, and but we're not really focusing on what started it to begin with. That's my point. Good point. I don't know. I what like do you it. think? No, I, I, I think you're, you're spot on. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a systematic thing that we have, uh, we have brought upon, uh, upon ourselves. And now we, we have an opportunity, Correct. I, I believe though, to get out of, <clears throat> out of the conundrum and be part of the bigger picture, uh, with the evolution of technology, uh, right now, I believe. And, and um, the evolution of technology, which is very important, bring me to the last point that I would like for you to address. And I've had a podcast on this one a few days ago and I recorded it, I haven't published it yet, but um, balancing AI innovation with a human expertise. Um, can you address that? Yeah. I, I think we're, we're faced with two things that are not multiple. Um, multi-exclusion that don't exclude each, each other, uh, so to speak. We can be super efficient with new technology and still be uh, reliant on 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 human inputs. As you noted already in our conversation before, it, it's really difficult to let large language models operate on their own entirely. They hallucinate. Uh, they can be a liability from a content creation point of view. They definitely need to be monitored. And so we need to adapt to new methodologies and workflows that make sense for the language industry in, in that, in that regard, just the same. So, and balance it, balancing it out might not always uh, mean the same thing uh, for for different workflows there's there's going to be instances in which the content can be localized without much human input and there's going to be other instances where we really need to uh, monitor it carefully and uh, get more people people involved it's a it's an ongoing process but anybody who's involved with ai on a on a daily basis like I am, and I assume you are too, uh, Robin, knows that we cannot let it operate independently entirely. So um, there's lots of opportunities to balance this out and to keep, keep people uh, involved in the localization industry, but also improve our output tremendously. Obviously, um, where you brush upon the on the two thousand word per day uh, idea, we're we're a long cry away from that. I I think at this point. So it's to me, it sounds like you know. Um, I always make the comparison between you know the autopilot on a Tesla, for instance, in a on a Canadian highway, straight highway, ten thousand kilometers long from one coast to coast. You put an autopilot on, you know, it, unless a moose cross over the, uh, the 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 highway, you're you're safe. Nothing's going to happen. 
the car will drive you to where you're going. But I imagine if you do the autopilot thing on a Tesla in the middle of downtown San Francisco or Los Angeles, uh, you are going to have issues. Yeah, it's, it's more it's more dangerous uh, for sure. Although Elon Musk probably would have uh, something to say about something to say about that, and might not necessarily agree. I know Tesla is doing a pretty good job at making those things autonomous, uh, so to speak. But I. I agree with you that that uh, bad things are going to happen if we just let uh, let it operate entirely on its own, and uh, so we have to we have to put in we have to put contingencies in place uh, in order to prevent. That. So one thing we didn't cover, and I, uh, I I can't help but cover this one. So we talked a lot about what our industry is doing about AI. What do you think the market wants to achieve with AI, in your opinion? Like the consumer of our services. What are they hoping to achieve with AI, do you think? I I think AI is permeating everything at, at the moment, not just the localization industry. Um, it, it, it's bringing the same efficiencies in many, many other um, industries. It's doing a lot of coding. Uh, I'm I'm under the impression as well. I can't open up my Twitter and 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 not see uh, posts about it writing Python code. Oh, I've tried it. I've tried coding with it. Oh, were you, pretty good. Were I wrote your, a. Your... Uh, I wanted to do an automation in uh, what was it? Uh, um, Microsoft related uh, uh, application, and I wanted to write a uh, Visual Basic macro. So I went to um, GPT-4 and I uh, told it what I wanted to create and created the code for me. Now, you know, if somebody who understand codes, I read the code and it looked pretty good. There were some parameters I have to change, so I changed them. And I put it in the um, um, Visual Basic uh, module in, uh, in, in Microsoft and I ran it and it runs, per runs perfectly. Now, if I would have to actually, you know, go back 30 years ago and try to learn my coding days, it will take me forever. This one is yeah. pretty easy. Um, now, mind you, it is a small sample of less complicated ways you can use it. At least for my sample in, uh, in in project that I was involved in, it worked. It's a it's a productivity enhancer without a without a doubt. And I <laughs> I, I experienced this myself. I have a background in database development. And whenever I'm running into a database issue now, I just go to GPT and I ask what the solution is by prompting it. And while before maybe I would be scouring the internet for user groups and, and people that are run into a similar issue, now I can actually ask a very specific question and get a very specific answer back. Uh, that's nothing short of mind blowing. I was in a podcast with Constantine Dranch uh, from Custom MT uh, a, a while back, and he challenged me to uh, make a custom GPT uh, that would be an LQA, and we laughed it off in the uh, in the event. And I went I, I went into uh, GPT and spent literally twenty minutes prompting uh, my way into it making a custom GPT. I can send you the link, Robin. It's simply amazing. You know, you put in a source text and a translation and it gives you a seven, eight points 
a full report of whether it's culturally appropriate, whether there's any mistakes in it, uh, where it could be more fluent, you name wow. it. It's absolutely mind-blowing. So, you know, those kind of, it's an absolute productivity 100%. enhancer without 100%, 100%. a doubt. Hey, listen, uh, I uh, want to thank you for your time today. Sorry, we're coming up to the time here. Uh, I appreciate Stefan uh, for joining me. Uh, always, uh, well, it's my first time, and I hope you make a point of coming back. You're always welcome to the channel anytime. I know today we had a. We're going to have a real coffee. We're going to have a real coffee for sure. I can't wait, man. I can't wait. I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to hang out with you. We seem to be like minded. Uh, I want to share some more (laughs) ideas. I know we only have one hour today, but I wish you lived a little closer. I live on one end of the continent, you live on the other end of the continent. Um, I hope we can get to see each other at some event someplace uh, and spend some time together. Uh, you're a very good person to get I to know, you're full of expertise that I encourage our audience to reach out to you and uh, find out more about what you can do, what you can offer to them. And I, I hope our audience will take me up on this and uh, reach out to you. Uh, Stefan is not hard to find. He's all over LinkedIn. And if you go to LinkedIn, you, may, you, you, you are going to see Stefan. I can guarantee you that. Thank you very much. Uh, Stefan, any last uh, words uh, before we before we stop the recording? It's been such a pleasure being uh, on uh, the podcast, Robin. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I've been waiting for us to meet and have a conversation for a very long time, and it was a real honor. Thank you for having the me. The honor is mine. Thank you so much, Stefan, for joining me. Appreciate it. For our audience, if you like what we do on this podcast, please uh, join us by subscribing to our channels. Uh, YouTube uh, and all the podcast channels, Spotify, Apple, Apple Chat, Apple Cast, sorry, and also um, uh, the rest of the podcasting uh, platforms that you are familiar with. Um, please join us. Please uh, participate in this conversation by commenting on our content and sharing the content. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.